Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Stefanos Tsitsipas is now a Masters 1000 champion for the second straight Masters tournament. We have a first-time champion. Congratulations to Tsitsipas and his fans. Uh, Andre Rublev had another chance to pick up his first, and uh, he was defeated in Tsitsipas in a very clean 6-3-6-3 decision for the Greek. All right, here's the plan today, everyone. Um, unfortunately, this was a, an awesome tournament, but I didn't have time to cover it midweek. So I'm going to start with the final, and that's going to be the majority of Monday Match Analysis because that's what the show is. I go over the final pretty much. Uh, but I will also discuss Nadal. Uh, Nadal's loss to Rublev a little bit. Djokovic's loss to Evans a little bit. Um, and what they what they mean. I'm also I think I'm going to work on a project for next week, uh, specifically about Djokovic and Nadal. And uh, I'll I'll get in I'll tell you more details about that a little bit later. Obviously, DB4 stat of the week, and it is French Open power rankings season. I know I know it's very exciting. Try to contain yourself. Um, no, but seriously. This is always kind of fun. This will be now on on every at the end of every Monday match analysis will be the uh, French Open power rankings um, where I track everyone's form heading into the clay court major in Paris. Uh, all right, let's start with the final. Take a quick look at the thumbnail. Uh, Pass, jubilant, of course, um, definitely a, a massive accomplishment for him. And, and let's just start here. He's now defeated Rafa Nadal at a slam. And won a Masters 1000 tournament. And coming into the year, I was expecting that that this might be the year where Tsitsipas clicks. Might be the year where he has uh, a step up into the into the into the top tier. Okay, into the top tier that was really occupied in 2020 by Djokovic, Nadal, and Dominic Team, right? And Daniil Medvedev on on certain surfaces. Well, I think on clay, at the very least, Tsitsipas probably steps into Daniil Medvedev's role and, and becomes a, a player. But uh, th this was this was clickage. We are seeing clickage. Um, I, I predicted him before the year to finish at number four, and uh, I'm feeling pretty good about that. But you have to be thrilled if you're Tsitsipas with the start to your year. You've defeated Rafa Nadal in a best-of-five match at a major. Uh, which obviously he he did break onto the scene beating Federer, but I think that uh, I, I think that was a big big victory for him, despite the semifinal against Medvedev not going the way he wanted. Uh, but to now to, to to finally break through here at a Masters was significant, and what enabled him to do it? What was the biggest difference between this version of Tsitsipas and some of the v versions that we saw in the past? Well, he handled the moment brilliantly, and. I don't know if I've said this before on this show, but the mental game, it's kind of like a weather a weatherman, a weather predictor, in the sense that the weather predictor, you never pay attention to your local weather guy until they get it wrong, right? Once they get it wrong, you, you tweet at them, you email, uh, you, you complain. No one ever, when they get it right, nobody ever pays attention. Nobody ever said, wow, great job. The, the you predicted it was raining, you predicted it was snowing, and you got it. Well, you're fantastic. No, no one ever does that. But when they get it wrong, now you pay attention. Now you Google their name. Same thing with uh, 
almost like a pilot, right? You never, uh, or, or, or an official, a chair umpire, right? You, you want to stay out the way. Okay. Mental game. Same thing. We don't talk about it when it goes right. We don't really talk about when someone just handles the moment well and plays their tennis and is completely focused throughout the match and never gets overly frustrated with themselves for something that they that they shouldn't, never gets distracted, never gets uh, too excited to the point where they, they drain themselves. When someone just has a very balanced, level, focused match, we don't talk about their mental game. That was Stefano Tsitsipas here. And we've documented his collapses and his, uh, his mental volatility at times. He admitted that he collapsed mentally in his match against Hubert Hurkacz in Miami just two weeks ago. The most famous example would be the six match points lost against Borna Chorich at the U.S. Open. But he's had to go through these moments, and this was his third Masters final. And that's important. It's big. It was Rublev's first. It was Tsitsipas's third. He lost in 2018 in Canada to Nadal, and he lost in 2019 against Djokovic in Madrid. He looked like he had been there before. The moment didn't weigh on him. Let's not gloss over a brilliant mental performance just because it was hard to notice, just because it didn't go wrong, just because it, he didn't come crashing down. Let's acknowledge a good mental performance. Now, I have three tactical points that I want to make about this match. Three things I, I want to talk about um, when it comes to Tsitsipas' prowess on clay. And why two, two matches in a row now, uh, he's really looked like the far better player on the court with Andre Rublev on this slow clay court surface. But first, this. I want to tell you about the sponsor of today's video, Tennis Clash. I really always thought that tennis needs more great games. Well, this is one of them. It's here. It's a free mobile 1v1 tennis game with super high-end graphics and just a fun playing experience. You can play live against real players all around the world, and there's a lot of cool RPG elements that'll just get you hooked. It's addicting. It's on Android and it's on iOS. I have a Google Pixel here, so sometimes I get left out of the fun, but not with Tennis Clash. So make sure you download it free from the links in the description box down below to support my channel and get 200 gems and 500 gold. If you don't want to listen to me, just check out the app stores. Tennis Clash has great ratings, 4.3 in the Play Store, and it's become a massive worldwide hit with more than 60 million downloads worldwide. What I love about this game, and, and really what I love about tennis as a sport, is that I can play with different characters, and I get to decide what ability I want to focus on. Forehand, backhand, movement. You know, do you know what you should do? Bring your favorite player out of retirement. Whoever your favorite player is, right? Mine is David Ferrer, so what am I going to do? I'm just going to jack up the agility, jack up the endurance, and, uh, you know, a little bit towards the forehand. Let's, let's bring them out of retirement. Let's... Let's just play like Ferrer. You can do that with however you want to play. So again, give this a try. Play against real players in the world's most famous tennis arenas. Make sure you download it for free using the link down in the description to support my channel and get 
200 gems and 500 gold. That'll start you off in a better position. You want to be on that Coco Golf track. You want to be on that Yannick Sinner track. So make sure if you're going to download the game, which you should, use the link in the description and get 200 gems and 500 gold for supporting my channel. Good luck, and I will see you out there. Remember to grind. All right, as I said, three main points that I want to take you through. The first is about Tsitsipas' athleticism and his court positioning. Uh, the second will be about second serve. The third will be about pace absorption and defense on the backhand wing. All right, so let me start with uh, the athleticism. It, it stuck out to me in this match. When I was watching this match, Tsitsipas looked a little physical for Andre Rublev. He really looked. He looked a little bit too physical. It looked like a lot of the matches that that you might see um, really at every level you see that sometimes you look at the court and one player looks a lot stronger than the other. And I think that this qualifies for Tsitsipas. I want to make a point mainly not about this matchup in particular, but just about Tsitsipas' development on the surface and what is making him and turning him into one of the best players in the world um, on clay courts. And I think it has a lot to do with uh, his development athletically, which has been just, uh, it's been visual um, in, in a lot of different ways, not just on the tennis court, but just you can see the transformation of his body. He came on tour, you know, in, in 2018 as a really, as kind of a slight skinny, lanky, but, but skinny frame. And he's filled out a lot and the results are very, very stark when it comes to his tennis. More specifically, I think that his body, his strength, um, has enabled him to enter what I call the land of the magical modern clay quarter. Magical modern clay quarter. I just came up with this. I've never used this before, but I have talked about this idea when it comes to, to three players, I think. Prime Stan Wawrinka, Dominic Team, and Rafael Nadal. All of these players generate tremendous top-of-the-line racket speed. They are all players who also have a lot of speed around a clay court and cover the court well. Uh, power is mass plus racket speed. That equals power. Right, So all these players, they have a lot of mass, they're, they're heavy, they're big, they swing fast, and they move well. It's the, ideal, it's the ideal tennis athlete. All of those players have that, and it enables them to do something with their court position, which I have talked about with Nadal and team, which is that uh, they can be in positions on a clay court, especially where they're in optimal position to defend because... They're far enough behind the baseline where they're giving themselves time to track down balls into the corners and to cover the court uh, as best they possibly can. So, so they're in what would traditionally be thought of as deep and defensive court positioning, which uh, ranges between probably 5 and 10 feet behind the baseline. That's kind of the sweet spot for, for what I'm talking about, I'd say. Uh, normally more than 5, if we're being honest. But these players are so special, they have so much power, they have so much heaviness off the ground that not only they can they defend from that position, they can also attack from that position. They can do damage. Not necessarily finish points from that spot, but they can break their opponent's contact point, point uh, and they can build 
uh, offense from that position. They might have to move up to finish, but they can build. They can take steps. They can take aggressive offensive steps from a position where uh, most players can't. So that is the land of the magical modern clay quarter with modern string technology, with modern uh, racket head acceleration principles and and clay court movement. You, you have these players who can generate offense from seven feet behind the baseline and they're so fast and they're in great defensive position at the same time. And it's, that's what, is creating this cocktail of just clay court impossibilities where they're, they are defensively and offensively dominant at the same time and from the same positions in on the court. Tsitsipas is now joining the club. He is joining the land of the magical modern clay quarter. And the, what's enabled him to do that is he's gotten so strong and he's gotten so athletic. Um, Andre Rublev cannot execute that. He's he's not strong enough to do that. He cannot hit on the run from eight feet behind the baseline and hit a heavy enough ball from that position that he's staying in a point and potentially doing damage or even just remaining unattackable if we want to set the bar a little bit lower. But Tsitsipas is strong enough to do just that. He can be in these positions and create offense from these positions to remain unattackable from these positions, to cover the court, to turn defense to offense. Something that Nadal just, oh my God, he, he revolutionized tennis with the way that he turned defense into offense. And it all started with his clay court tennis. And all of the players that I've mentioned from Vavrinka to team and now Tsitsipas, they have all followed in Nadal's footsteps. Um, and and implemented this these abilities, uh, but I think that something that really stood out to me on the court with Rublev and Tsitsipas was just Stefanos's athletic um, elite tier that he has entered, and it's enabled him to play that kind of tennis. I saw him turn defense into offense uh, so well, and just with his modern um, his modern heavy topspin, high margin aggression from deep behind the baseline, man, it's a beautiful thing to watch on a slow clay court because it gives him both safety and defense and offense at the same time. When it comes to this matchup, um, I want to talk more specifically um, about the disparity in second serve between Rublev and Tsitsipas. Obviously, the match stats kind of tell you all you need to know in this respect, which is that Rublev was able to protect his first serve decently. Uh, he did not return well off of Tsitsipas's first serve. Um, but it was really the second serve that separated these two. And it, it becomes a matter of, of pure math. It was the most predictable thing coming into this matchup. I could have told you, anyone really could have told you, that know these players well, that Andre Rublev might struggle to protect his second serve uh, and Tsitsipas is in a better position uh, to, to protect it better. I would say that 68% on Tsitsipas's second serve is kind of a, 
it's kind of an indication of how Rublev really didn't have a good return day and wasn't at his best off the ground. But the 33% second serve points won um, on Andre Rublev's part is just a credit to but Here's what I'm going to say. That is not much of a variable. I think they can play 10 times, and Andre Rublev will never protect his second serve above 43%. Sorry to give such a weird specific number, but I don't want to quite say 45 because I don't really think that he can do that well. Um, I don't want to say 40 because I think he could do better. So 43%. I think they could play 10 times. Rublev would never win more than 43% of his second serve points. Meanwhile, Tsitsipas, I could see him protecting 50% um, pretty consistently. Uh, I don't know that he could protect his second serve at at the level that he did uh, in this match. Um, th that's unbelievable that he was able to win 68 but um, I want to focus mostly on Rublev's inability to protect his second serve. Tsitsipas was only hitting really forehand returns on Rublev's second serve. He was finding a forehand pretty much every single time. And then Steph was hitting high, heavy balls to the Andre Rublev backhand, looking to really break Rublev's contact point above the shoulder, um, which he was able to do very successfully. And he was getting something to attack off of the next ball rather consistently. Uh, but this is just a pure mathematical advantage that Tsitsipas is going to have over Rublev really very consistently. consistently. Uh, and it's just about how heavy each of them can hit their second serve. This also goes back to athleticism. It goes back to strength because... Technically, I don't think Rublev's second serve is horrible, but he's just clearly not generating enough racket head acceleration on his second serve to hit a, to hit a heavy kick serve, something that Tsitsipas doesn't have any trouble doing whatsoever. There was a point midway through the second set where I got uh, from the Tennis Channel broadcast uh, average second serve speed. Tsitsipas was 103 miles per hour. Andre Rublev was 86 miles per hour. Just a massive disparity. And at the professional level, when you're facing someone with uh, uh, someone who hits as heavy as Stefano Tsitsipas, if you're unable to get a second serve to his backhand, that's a massive, massive problem. Credit to Tsitsipas and the forehand that he possesses. Um, it's it's such a brutalizing weapon on a clay court. And let's let's remember uh let's talk about kick serves and flat serves and and how they affect this this court surface. Why the kick serve is so important on clay. Well, your flat serve, your slice serve, it's going to be less effective on clay because the ball isn't going to skid through the court. It's going to lose a lot of speed and that's why Rublev's first serve, which is generally a big asset, it's not going to be quite as good on this surface, but the kick serve has an opportunity to uh, to still be a weapon on a clay court because of the higher bounce, because the court will still take to the topspin well. If you have no weight of shot, if you have no power, no heaviness, not enough spin on your kick serve, you're surrendering all of your weaponry when it comes to serving. You're surrendering your flat serve and your slice serve, which is going to be diminished. But the kick serve is the one thing that might still be in your corner. 
But if it's underpowered, it's the same way why power becomes more important on clay and why on quicker surfaces power is just not as important because uh, you can use the court to kind of help. The, the court will help you. Well, the court does not help Andre Rublev hit through his second serve and to remain unattackable on his second serve. The court is not going to help. Will not. It's all, all the power, all the heaviness needs to come off the racket of the server. And in this case, Tsitsipas has a viable second serve, more than viable, a good second serve. And he was able to hit it to, to Andre Rublev's backhand. He was able to hit it with enough heaviness that Rublev wasn't just teeing off. And he was able to protect it, and Rublev wasn't. Plain and simple. On a quicker court surface, um, it might not be as stark, but when it comes to heavy topspin, when it comes to um, a kick serve, the clay court is really going to separate the good from the bad when it comes to your kick serve. And that's what we saw in this matchup and uh, a, a huge disparity in the way these two players were able to um, protect their second serves. Tsitsipas on the backhand. This head-to-head, uh, -head, Rublev Tsitsipas, it's been very matchup dependent. Andre Rublev got a win over Tsitsipas uh, very recently on the hard courts of Rotterdam in the Netherlands. It was comfortable. It was straight sets. What did Rublev do? He dominated with his first strike tennis, taking advantage of the Tsitsipas return hitting heavy, punishing forehands into the Tsitsipas backhand corner. Stefanos, unable to defend his backhand, really not able to defend it as well as Andrei Rublev. Well, again, we see this. We see the reasons why this matchup has been surface-dependent thus far. Tsitsipas was able to absorb all the Andrei Rublev pace rather easily, rather routinely. Rublev could give Stefanos all the pace in the world, all the pace in every every fiber of his being on his inside-out forehand. Stefanos was absorbing that with relative ease on the backhand side. Again, using deep court position, turning defense into offense, and there was nothing Andre Rublev could do to rush Stefanos Tsitsipas, which is something that in the past he's been able to do, especially on Tsitsipas's backhand side. But I was incredibly impressed with how well Tsitsipas kept his cross-court backhand, especially out of the middle of the court. I was impressed with the depth. I was impressed with the angle, the width that Tsitsipas was able to, to generate on a consistent basis on his backhand side, keeping the ball out of the middle, away from the Andre Rublev forehand. I also saw a lot of moments in the match where even when Rublev found that forehand and hit his inside-in forehand, Tsitsipas using his defense to just simply range to his right and reset the point with his neutralizing cross-court forehand. So it felt like Rublev's offensive patterns were not working very well. That Tsitsipas was able to neutralize them and turn defense into offense. Absorb the pace on his backhand. 
And in the trading, in the backhand cross-court exchanges, in those ad-side exchanges, I've thought in the past, Rublev has had a decided advantage in those exchanges. And in this match, that was not the case. Rublev had superior hitting, uh, superior depth, superior width, and was finding his forehand on a more consistent basis off of the backhand-to-backhand exchange which is uh, always going to be the number one key in this matchup. They're always looking to attack with their forehands. They they are just potent weapons. And while Tsitsipas was sometimes able to absorb the weaponry, Rublev was not able to do that as consistently. Still, he was also... Tsitsipas was the one using the weaponry on a more consistent basis. That comes from the serve return battle. How well are you beginning the point, and it also comes from how well are you using the backhand, how well are you protecting the backhand to find those forehands. Checking every single box, Tsitsipas had a decided advantage here. All right, before we do the DB4 stat of the week, let's talk about Djokovic and Nadal real quick. Uh, I predicted I didn't expect much from them. Uh, 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 I respected Nadal. And I put him in the final, but then I had him losing because I didn't think he'd win the title this week. I didn't think Djokovic would win the title this week, and and um, that part of my Monte Carlo preview was was correct. I want to do a larger piece about uh, the scheduling spots, and I'm going to do some tracking of uh, how to predict Nadal and Djokovic and when they're going to lose. And a lot has to do with the proximity to a major, how far away are they from a major, and also their proximity... Um, when it pertains to long layoffs, rest periods. So this was a tournament where they're coming off of a rest period and the major is over a month away, just barely a month away. And for those two reasons, I thought it was a, a vulnerable scheduling spot for them. I'm not concerned about their losses at all. I find them understandable. I find them predictable. Uh, over the course of a 10-month season, they no longer at their respective ages can maintain a full level of intensity over the course of that season. So not concerned about the losses, but it is worth talking about tactically uh, why they lost because some interesting thing some interesting things happened in each of their defeats. Let me start with the Djokovic defeat because, um, or excuse me, the Nadal defeat because it's a nice transition just continuing to talk about Andre Rublev. Um, my favorite thing about Rublev is his ability to hit to tiny margins and do so with relative consistency. His ability to do that has given him a very unique advantage to attack the right-handed backhand with a level of commitment and a level of effectiveness that few can replicate. In the case of Casper Ruud, uh, in the semifinal, a player who has one of the most one of the most unbalanced players wing to wing on tour, and I don't mean that as an insult. A lot of that is how dynamic and fantastic his forehand is. His backhand isn't even close to to being at that level. So there's an example of a player that when Andre Rublev plays, he's going to do an unbelievable job of putting the ball in Rude's backhand corner. And I know that sounds obvious, but believe me, most players just can't do that. Most players are going to go for that tiny target in the in the corner. Um, or on the backhand sideline, and they're going to make tons of errors. They're going to leak errors. 
So many players do that against a Dominic team, against a Juan Martin Del Potro. They're so terrified of the forehand that they're making errors just to try to find the backhand. But Rublev is so good at finding that small target. Well, I've never seen him do it to a left-hander. I've never seen him execute that against a left-hander. He did that to Nadal. Oftentimes, Rublev will hit more than 50% of his forehands down the line. And that's just a product of product of attacking the backhand. And I think, wow, that's really, really cool um, that he can do that without without making mistakes, without making uh, more, you know, too many errors. Well, he did it on the backhand against Nadal. He hit most of his backhands down the line. And Rafa was stubborn. Nadal wants the righty to hit the backhand cross court on clay. He, he wants that. That's why he'll hit his high looping backhand down the line. Um, that's how he'll attack the righty backhand, hoping that he'll get the short backhand cross court. But Rublev wasn't going to give him the backhand cross court. Wasn't going to give him that. He's going to hit the backhand down the line. Then Nadal might go down the line. And guess what? Rublev would just go back down the line again. He was very, very stubborn. And when I say the word stubborn, I mean that in the most complimentary of fashions. He wasn't going to hit um, his backhand cross court. And when he was, it turned into a surprise tactic. It turned into a damaging shot, an aggressive shot. Um, and it wasn't a good backhand day by Nadal. Rublev got a little bit lucky in that sense that it wasn't a good backhand day by Nadal. Nadal wasn't good. Um, Nadal wasn't at his 100% level in really any aspect whatsoever. The serve was particularly abysmal. It reminded me of his loss in Rome to Diego Schwartzman when his serve was at like 50%. And it was just almost difficult to watch him serve. And uh, that was the case again here. Uh, the, the Nadal serve continues to be somewhat of an adventure uh, in the last three years, he continues to tinker. He continues to have some some off moments with it. But so far, it's never really been terrible at a major, which is really what counts. Uh, Rublev took advantage of that. He's a really good aggressive returner, is Rublev. Um, and he took advantage of that. Um, but the way he pinned Nadal in the backhand corner was very impressive. Um, and I do think my biggest takeaway was... I wonder if uh, if Novak Djokovic should try hitting more backhands down the line. And I only say that because he can. I wouldn't recommend that for any righty on tour. Uh, most right-handers can't do that. They would simply miss. They would make errors. Uh, but Djokovic has obviously the, the precision, the ability to change direction on his backhand, where he could actually execute exactly what Rublev did here. <laughs> And I don't think he's really done that. I think he's kind of continued to, not that he doesn't hit his backhand um, down the line, but I don't think that's been the foundation of his baseline trading against Nadal on clay. It's never been the foundation of his baseline trading. Because that's pretty awkward. It's pretty pretty rare that you'll see that. But for Rublev, he made that the, the foundation of his baseline trading. And I would like to see maybe Djokovic try that. So that was interesting to me. Novak lost in the in his second match, so I think it was the third round because he got a bye, but the third round against Dan Evans, who uses his backhand slice, obviously. Novak also just not at his best, not at 100%. Had a really bad forehand day in particular. Uh, struggled with the wind. Djokovic sometimes does struggle with the wind, but when his feet aren't as sharp, 
His clay court movement still looks like it's a little bit rusty, and he's not balanced. And Djokovic is the most balanced player maybe in the history of the sport. When he's not balanced, it's not good. It's not good. It, it really it jumps out at you. It sticks out. It, you can see it. It's very visible. Visible. It's visibly. It's almost visibly volatile when Djokovic isn't balanced because you're so used to seeing him balanced. Balanced. With that being said, the backhand slice by Evans was unbelievably effective because it elongated the point. It didn't do any damage. It doesn't. Evans' backhand uh, slice can do damage on certain courts. On a, a skiddy, uh, slick, low-bouncing court, like a grass court, Evans' slice is going to be a damaging shot. On clay, it's not that. And maybe that's why Evans had never, until making the semifinal here in Monte Carlo, he had never had any success on this surface. But what it did do was it took advantage of the heavy and slow conditions in, in the sense that it, without fail, elongated the point. And Evans attacked what has been a trend for Djokovic on slower, heavier surfaces, which is that uh, Novak has not been as willing to suffer through, willing or able, one of the two, right? It's hard to discern which one, willing or able. To play long rallies, to suffer through long rallies. I was unbelievably impressed with Evans' shot tolerance. I did not think he had that in, in him, but it was better than Novak Djokovic. It was superior. And with Evans's low slice, with the ball not bouncing to a level that is very attackable, with the ball not coming in with enough pace for Djokovic to use that pace and then redirect it, Novak had no way of making inroads into uh, offensive inroads into the point off of Evans's backhand slice. So it was the ultimate point elongator. And Evans really did have better shot tolerance than Djokovic in this match. And there you go. The win to Dan Evans. Again, long term, I don't read too much into either of these losses. But tactically, I do. Something to take note of. Uh, something to, to, to remember. And let's see if these tactics come up again. Um, a good tactic doesn't mean you win the match. It, it doesn't. It, it means you imp increase the chances. Um, so a better version of Djokovic, a better version of Nadal wins those matches. Guaranteed. No hesitation when I say that. They win. Um, that doesn't mean that the, the tactic isn't good or interesting. French Open Power Rankings coming up. But first, let's do the DB4 Stat of the Week for more tennis history. Visit db4tennis.com. Today's insight, we look at the tricky transition from the hard courts of Miami to the clay courts of Monte Carlo. And it's definitely difficult to have success in both back-to-back. -back. Let's see, off the top of my head, I'd say Andre Rublev probably did the best job of, of having a successful tournament um, in 2021 uh, at both events, making the semifinal of one and the final of other. But if, if we look at history, only five players have won both of these Masters events. Lendl, Rios, Vilander, Muster, and Djokovic. Only one of them could win both Masters back-to-back. -back. It was Novak Djokovic in his incredible and admirable 2015 season. If any player wants to repeat this feat during his career, um, they would have to be number one ranked player 
in the world. All five players have held that position. Um, and all five players have won 18 tournaments in their storied careers. So let's take a look at the big three. This only accounts for, th this only triggers once they've made the Miami final. Once they've made the Miami final, then they're kind of in this diagram. And you can see uh, Novak on the bottom right is the only player who checks both boxes of being champion in both. Nadal's been runner-up at Miami and champion at Monte Carlo a couple of times, uh, or a bunch of times, I should say. Um, and and then the same could be said once for Federer in 2006, where he won Miami, uh, was runner-up at Monte Carlo. Um, and then Djokovic was champion at, in Miami in 2012, uh, but was unable to win Monte Carlo, losing in the finals there. So really a, a feather in the cap of Novak Djokovic's tremendous 2015 season. It's a really difficult transition, and that's why I put a little bit more stock into Madrid and Rome, particularly Rome, because Madrid's got some funky conditions that aren't like Roland Garros at all. Um, I put the most stock into Rome when it comes to predicting French Open success, right? Which brings us to the first installment of the French Open Power Rankings. It is March 19th, 2021. Quick disclaimer about the French Open Power Rankings before we get started. This is an indication, is a reflection of current form. It is not a prediction of what the form will be in mid-May when the French Open begins. This is a current form prediction. Not, sorry, not prediction. A current form assessment, not a future prediction. This is all about right now. It is not about Roland Garros. It is about who is playing the best clay court tennis right now. And uh, if they played tomorrow, surprise, tomorrow, play, um, that this is how I would shake up these players' level. It's a way to track their level. All right, without further ado, French Open Power Rankings. Let's do it. Coming in at number 10 is Yannick Sinner. A breakthrough last year at the French Open, making the quarterfinal, pushing Rafa Nadal really harder than anyone else in that quarterfinal meeting, nearly taking the first set. Tough draw in Monte Carlo, losing to Novak Djokovic right away. Can't read into that too much, but his power, the way his game fits on clay, um, he figures to be very, very dangerous, and I think he deserves to come in at number 10. At number 9 is Casper Ruud, someone who um, anyone who follows the, the Challenger Tour or um, the the lower level tournaments, we've all had our eye on Casper Ruud as a player who can do a lot of damage on clay courts and following his Monte Carlo semifinal run, I believe he deserves the respect to be at number nine. With that being said, he doesn't have much of a track record um, going far at Roland Garros, so he's going to have to put up good results in the following weeks at Rome, um, and in Madrid in order to stay in the top 10 of the French Open power rankings. At number eight is Daniil Medvedev, who unfortunately came down with COVID-19 a day before Monte Carlo was set to begin. This could go a couple of ways when it comes to COVID. Uh, it's affected players very negatively, negatively like Grigor Dimitrov, and it's affected players more mildly, such as Novak 
Novak Djokovic. You hope for Medvedev's sake that there's not going to be any residual effect from COVID-19. But with that combined with his shaky track record on clay courts, Daniil Medvedev comes in at number eight. Coming in at number seven is Andre Rublev whose game isn't horrible for clay. In fact, I think it could become one of his better surfaces. Also not tailor-made for clay. Uh, but you see him, um, you know, I, I think I think you can kind of expect Rublev to continue um, making deep runs into these tournaments, but I think a clear gap emerges when it comes to Rublev and some of the better, some of the best players on clay courts. Um, it, it should be interesting to, to watch his progression. Number seven, I think a good spot for him. At number six, six is Alexander Zverev. German media is reporting that Zverev is dealing with a minor injury that did affect his performance at Monte Carlo. So that is something to monitor. Uh, but he does have multiple Masters 1000 titles on clay court. Um, and some deep runs into the French Open as well under his belt. Given Zverev's track record and how well-suited well his game is for clay, he comes in at number six tentatively as we monitor his health and obviously the stability of his mental game as he is known to sometimes develop yips on both his second serve and his forehand. At number five is Diego Schwartzman, who was... After no, after Novak Djokovic and Rafael Nadal, the third most effective player on clay courts in the year 2020. Remember, he made the final of Rome and he made the semifinal at the French Open. Given that track record, he's going to get a lot of leeway. He's going to get a lot of benefit of the doubt coming into this clay court season. So despite his early defeat to Kaspar Ruud, Schwartzman should still be four spots above Kaspar Ruud. At number five here, and let's see how he does as clay court season continues. Number four is Dominic Team, who's dealt with, I would I think it's fair to say, both mental and physical problems since winning the US Open in 2020. In 2021, Dominic Team has been among the most disappointing uh performers. A lot of it has been a result of a foot injury that he sustained and more recently a knee injury that has kept him out of Monte Carlo and Barcelona and um, a couple of uh, the more recent tournaments. So team has been on the shelf. He's been injured. Let's see how he comes back. Uh, he also needs to find new mojo mentally, which uh, he admits that after winning the U.S. Open, it's been kind of a recalibration and he needs to re-motivate himself. So... It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And will that transformation or that will that rekindling of the fire and the maximum fitness, will that occur in time for the French Open or will that be too late? Will it come after the French Open? Dominic Team comes in at number four. At number three is Novak Djokovic. Could be a surprise to some, um, but where Djokovic is, has come in, to, to most of, of his issues is um, struggling to defeat Dominic Team, where he's lost three out of his last four matches to the Austrian. Um, also <clears throat> does have some losses against Stefano Tsitsipas and has been unable to challenge uh, Rafael Nadal, wasn't unable to challenge Rafael Nadal in the 2020 French Open final. Djokovic has still been very good on clay, but it, it's really, it's looked like his worst surface as of late by good distance. And as of late, when I say as of late, I mean really since 2019. 
Uh, he has not looked um, as good on clay as he's looked on hard court and grass courts. Uh, and that is just a matter of he hasn't been able to to really pull off those massive wins at the French Open uh, against Team and Nadal. I would say the concern is if Stefanos Tsitsipas plays the same level, that kind of elite level that I think is equal to what we've seen out of Dominic Team. if he brings that level to the court, um, why can't he... Why can't he pose trouble for Novak Djokovic uh, just like he did last year at the Roland Garros semifinal? So Tsitsipas, for now, gets to go one spot above Novak Djokovic. Why? Because last time they played at Roland Garros, Tsitsipas was in was in great position in that match. He forced a five-set, I think that um, a fifth-set, rather. He came into the match, didn't handle the moment well mentally at all. Once he settled down and played his tennis, he was winning. And then he physically broke down in the fifth set. So mentally bad in the beginning, physically bad at the end. In the middle, when things were clicking, Tsitsipas was winning. And now after a Monte Carlo run to the championship that looked pristine, that looked dominant, um, Tsitsipas is going to be a player here. Um, and for now, he's going to be one spot above Novak Djokovic. Although I do admit that Given the the track record, the superior track record that Djokovic has, it's going to be difficult for Tsitsipas to fend off Novak Djokovic um, and very likely that Djokovic overtakes him before we're all said and done. At number one, finally, Rafael Nadal, who really just needs no introduction. Um, and uh, I don't really want to talk about why Nadal is number one right now. Um, I don't know. You know, the question that I have for you guys is this. Should Roger Federer be in here? The French Open power rankings is all about form and tracking players' form. Well, if, if Federer's not going to be active, um, I don't know that he should be included in this French Open power ranking. Federer has said, and I'll end the show on this, news with Roger Federer. Federer has said that he will play the French Open and he will play Geneva which is a tournament that falls after Rome. Um, now, it's not the week before Roland Garros. Like normally, it would be Rome, one week, French Open. But this year, with the delay, it's not. Uh, so that makes sense. It makes sense for, for Federer. I'm a little bit surprised that he didn't play Madrid because the conditions are kind of nice for him. And um, I wouldn't have been surprised if he played Madrid. But uh, Federer's season, so to speak, is going to start... Um, I think as you know, I know it's already started. He's played sometimes, but for all intents and purposes, Federer's season starts two weeks prior to the French Open in Geneva. So uh, comment what you think. Should Federer be added to the French Open power rankings? And also, as always, comment your thoughts on my French Open power rankings. Uh, that's all I got for you. Hope you enjoyed. Hold on. Remember to subscribe on podcast platforms and leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at Gil underscore, at Gil underscore Gross. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.